evening to you. Leviticus chapter 23. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. In chapter 23, the Lord gives Moses instruction concerning seven uh, annual religious feasts that he wanted to be a part of their uh, calendar year. And in a sense, what the Lord was kind of doing with them was pulling out their uh, day timer or their calendar really for their history and saying, I, I want to make seven appointments with you through the year. And I want you to block them off ahead of time. These are non-negotiables. Everything works around these uh, holidays and these times that I want to spend with you. And so this is what he initiated so that their, their whole year would be dominated by him. And each one of the feasts that he lays out here, they had a history with the feast. It meant something to them from their history. It was a time to remember what God uh, had been to them in their history, uh, remembering what he was because he's the same yesterday and today and forever in their lives today. And then also uh, some of these things had uh, Im import in terms of the future. So they would think about how God is going to continue you know, in, in this way uh, in our lives into the future. And so uh, what, I mean, what a blessing for a nation to have a annual calendar with seven feast days or holidays like that uh, on them. Uh, imagine if all of the uh, holidays or celebrations in a, a nation, all of them were given over to spend time reflecting upon how good God has been and how gracious and faithful He's been to us in our history. Now we have uh, New Year's Day right around the corner, which is you know, a day off in our culture and wouldn't it be something if there was no Times Square and no drinking, no partying and no Dick Clark, though he's not doing much of that, you know, anymore and all, but it would be just a time where the expectation of the whole nation would be uh, even as uh, Rob mentioned this morning in in introducing one of the services this morning, a time where the nation would just pull aside and just think about how faithful God has been to us through the highs and the lows of this last year and then to carry that testimony of his faithfulness in our lives this last year and, and project it onto the coming year that what he's been he's going to be to us and, and uh, what, a, what a thing if a nation were made up of people that that was something that was important to them and precious to them and, and that's what these feasts were to kind of be related to the children of Israel. Now each one of these feasts represents something uh, very, very significant to the children of Israel in their history, but each one of them speaks even, something even more to us as Christians because each of them communicates something even more significant to us about Jesus. Concerning the feasts and the festivals and, and all of these things, let me read to you what the Holy Spirit declares concerning them as they relate to Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, Therefore let no one judge you, the Bible says, in food or drink or regarding a festival, now that's these feasts, or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And so we'll look at what these meant to the children of Israel, but then uh, take a look at what they are, uh, mean and spoke of concerning Christ. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocation, these are my feasts. And he begins with the Sabbath, which wasn't a feast, but he's reiterating the Sabbath to them as an important thing uh, to him. Six days shall work be done, uh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And so uh, the uh, importance of the Sabbath. God uh, looks at you and I. He looks at his creation and man. Even before the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, he saw that it was important for us to work. Adam and Eve tended the garden. So there's nothing wrong with working hard. Uh, that's important, and it's an important uh, keeps us out of a lot of trouble if we're working hard at what's good and, uh, and, and it uh, supplies for our needs of our lives and the Lord uses it in that, that way. So hard work is a good thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's God-ordained. But then he also wants, wanted them to rest on the seventh day. And the reason that he wanted them to rest on the seventh day was that they needed rest, but it was also to be like God. God did all of his creation in six days and he rested on the seventh day. So what does that tell us? Um, in this very efficient, um, very fast-moving, high-productivity culture that we live in. All that's great for six days, but it crowds out the rest. It crowds out a day that's needed in, in our week that should be set aside for the, our growth spiritually, uh, development of our relationship with the Lord, drawing closer to the Lord, keeping this life in perspective. And God n knew that uh, working hard, uh, making money, doing all of these kinds of things, running the field, bringing the crops and all of these things for the children of Israel, the tendency would be uh, to take that and, and all of that would crowd out the spiritual angle of their lives. So this was a way for them to show, uh, to demonstrate, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all these other things will be added unto you. So it was a, for spiritual growth and to keep our heads screwed on straight to realize what we're really about here supremely is, is not the next crop, it's not the next paycheck, it's not the next bonus, it's not the next promotion. What we are here for as God's people supremely is uh, for God's work and uh, resting in Him, growing in our relationship with Him, what He wants to do in us and through us in this world. Otherwise, we'll be no good for the other six days uh, of the week. And so, in terms of the Sabbath, the Sabbath, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of the book of Hebrews declares that the Sabbath, the Old Testament Sabbath, was fulfilled in Jesus, and uh, He is our Sabbath rest. And so we have a rest in Him uh, all of the time. We certainly rest as it relates to our salvation because uh, Jesus has provided us with a finished salvation. Uh, when God was finished creating the world, uh, heavens and the earth, He rested. Jesus has provided us with a finished salvation, and He is at rest related to that salvation, and we can be at rest too as we have uh, received Him into our heart. These are, verse 4, the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And so feast number one, 
was the Passover. And that was a celebration of God's deliverance of the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. And you remember that they uh, took the blood of the specified sacrifice, they applied it to the door and the lentil of, of their homes, and then when the angel uh, coming and bringing judgment upon Egypt, which is a picture of the world, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over, and the judgment would not fall on that house. And so it, was, it speaks of salvation based upon the blood of a specified um, of sacrifice. Paul makes it very easy for us to, in our application of this to Jesus when he writes to the church at Corinth and he declares Jesus to be our Passover lamb. When God looks at us because of our faith that we've put in Jesus Christ as our Savior, when He looks at me and when He looks at you, He doesn't see our sin. He sees the blood. When I see the blood, I will pass over. He sees the righteousness of Christ uh, put to our account. And so uh, Jesus is that Passover lamb, and He fulfilled this feast of, of the Passover uh, at Calvary in providing us with salvation he became the Lamb of God who not only causes God to pass over our sin, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened or no yeast <laughs> bread. And uh, so the flat kind of pita bread. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days, and the seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So the Passover was one day. It was immediately followed by seven days known as the Feast of, of Unleavened uh, Bread. And so it began uh, just the, the day after the, the uh, Passover uh, uh, lamb was sacrificed and went for seven days from the 15th through the 21st. Uh, it's called the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread for the children of Israel because when they left uh, Egypt and, and God delivered them out of there, uh, He told them not to put any yeast or leaven into their bread because they would need to uh, make their exodus out of Egypt. And so that was, that was why... Uh, it's called the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread. And so to remember God's deliverance of them out of Egypt, they were to eat unleavened bread for seven days. And in fact, they were uh, told, as, as we saw earlier in Exodus, they were to remove all leaven, all yeast, uh, even from their homes for those seven days. And so this was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What it speaks to us of Jesus, leaven is a type of sin in the Bible. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread speaks to us. The Passover speaks of Jesus' sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, it speaks of Jesus' sinlessness. Uh, all leaven was removed. And so as a sacrifice, the sinlessness of Jesus. But it also speaks of the purity that is to mark his disciples. And just as the children of Israel were to remove all leaven from their homes for seven days, seven being the number of completion in the Bible, uh, they were to remove that for seven days following the Passover, uh, so too once a person becomes saved, once they're redeemed and become a Christian, then a holy life 
and separation from sin should immediately follow the, the salvation experience. The seven days, number of completion, it symbolizes the entire life of a believer now after his experience of redemption. Again, Paul makes this uh, typology very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, again, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us and giving us the typology of the Passover. He then goes on to help us understand how to um, uh, apply the Feast of Unleavened Bread to Jesus. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity uh, and truth. And so Jesus is applying this Old Testament imagery of the Feast of, of the Unleavened Bread to a particular situation of unrighteousness and sinfulness that was occurring there in the church at, at Corinth. And so he was saying that our righteousness uh, is God's children is to be both imputed and practical. When I become a Christian, as I said, when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ that's been put to my account. The word is imputed. It's a, it's a legal term, an accounting term that's used. But that doesn't mean that well, I'll just go ahead and live however, whatever sinful life that I want because when God sees me, He sees the righteousness of Christ put to my account. We are in response to what God has done for us then to live a holy life and to take that uh, seriously. And so Jesus here is the first two feasts uh, demonstrate he not only saves us from the penalty of sin but also from the power of sin and giving us the ability to live a holy life I like how Peter put it in his second epistle he said grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And so uh, he's given us the power now to live an unleavened uh, life. Now, just as the Feast of Unleavened Bread followed the Passover, so too our sanctification follows our salvation. Now, here's, here's what all of that means for those of you who are new to the Bible. Here's what I'm saying in this. A person must never, ever make the mistake of saying, I am going to wait until I get my life cleaned up to trust in Jesus as my Savior. That's to, back, that's to get things backwards all the way back to Exodus and Leviticus. That's to misunderstand the whole Bible. We come to the Lord not only for forgiveness, but we come to the Lord because if we could get our life together, we would have done it long before now. We are what we are because we can't. And uh, so don't sit here tonight and say, boy, someday when I really think I've got it together and I'm worthy and I feel like, you know, God will... Uh, someday when I have a week where I'm like half as sinful as I normally am, then I'm going to invite Jesus into my heart. Uh, don't wait for it. Never is, is going to happen. Jesus saves us and then he cleanses us of our sin. Somebody's likened to him. He, Jesus talked about winning souls. He, he spoke of it in the context of... Uh, fishing and becoming a fisher of men. And Jesus, of course, as the old saying goes, is the ultimate fisherman. He not only catches us, but he cleans us after he's caught us. But you've got to let him catch you uh, first. Then he moves on in verse 9 uh, to the feast of first fruits. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And so because of this sheaf of first fruits, it was called the Feast of, of, of First Fruits. This would have been uh, in the spring, uh, March kind of April of the year, spring of, of the Jewish year. And uh, so this crop would not have been wheat. It probably would have been a sheaf of barley that was, uh, would have been uh, lifted up to him. And he shall wave the sheaf. And it was an acknowledgment. Uh, Lord, we acknowledge that everything that we have uh, it comes from you and we thank you we give you the first offering of, of, of what it is that, that you have blessed us with in this crop and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath the priest shall wave it verse 11 is significant we'll come back to it and you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord its grain offering shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma and its drink offering shall be of wine one-fourth of a hen you shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to the Lord it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all of your dwellings and so before they ate anything of, of that uh, harvest that God had given to them this was to be offered to the Lord as a thanksgiving and an acknowledgement that he had provided it so uh, expression of, of thanks uh, giving uh, to him now the um, date is very very significant there uh, it is called the Feast of First Fruits, and it was to occur, as we see there in verse 11, on the day after the Sabbath. And the Sabbath that it's speaking of is the Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if this starts to fry your brain, just say, Lord, help me to understand what I can here, but, you know, leave this man in his little world, please. If, but it, it is worth the effort. I have tried to simplify it. So the Feast of First Fruit was to occur on the day after the Sabbath and the Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That is, on the second day of the Feast of Unleavened uh, Bread. And that would have been on the 16th day of the first month. So here you have the Passover representing Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins. That occurred on the 14th. That day was immovable. Then you had the first Sabbath, the next, uh, 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 the very next day, the Saturday, uh, which was on the 15th that began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then on the following day was Sunday the 16th, where they were then to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. Now what this speaks of concerning Jesus is very, very beautiful. This feast speaks of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And uh, just as this Feast of First Fruit was celebrated on the Sunday following the Passover. What was the day of Jesus' resurrection? On the Sunday following the Passover. And so Jesus was raised again from the dead on the Sunday following that Passover, following his death upon the cross for our sins. And this is why the Apostle Paul uses the language that he does 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, to describe Jesus' resurrection from the dead in the way that he does uh, to them as he writes to the church at Corinth. And he says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And the point that the Holy Spirit was making through Paul was just as that sheaf of wheat was offered to God uh, on the Feast of First Fruit, it, and that that would be offered and then followed by a great harvest, so too Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a, is a guarantee of a great harvest from death following uh, His death, burial, and resurrection. His Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the guarantee of our resurrection from the dead, our victory over death, our everlasting life. And so our resurrection from the dead, our victory over death in the future is as sure a historical fact as the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. That's how sure we're going to be resurrected into heaven itself. That's as sure as it gets <laughs> as far as heaven is concerned. And so the first fruits, uh, Jesus fulfilled this feast in his resurrection and it speaks of the sureness of our resurrection. Then he goes on in verse 15 and he writes about the feast of Pentecost. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. So seven sevens, 49 days. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. And you shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two e tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. And then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs, and they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the uh, harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleanings from your harvest. You shall leave them to the poor, for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And so the Feast of Pentecost occurred, uh, uh, and Pentecost means a 50th day. The feast is actually unnamed here in the passage. It's later going to become known as the Feast of Pentecost because it took place seven weeks after, and a day after the Passover. And so what it speaks related to Jesus, it was on the day of Pentecost that Jesus sent his Holy Spirit uh, to baptize his disciples with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Ten days after his 
ascension into heaven. Remember following the Passover and then His resurrection on that Sunday. Uh, for, we're told that for 40 days He you know, was still present it, doing different things in the world and, and all. Then uh, at 40 days He ascended into heaven, told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father concerning the Holy Spirit. They waited the 10 days until it was the, the 50th day. And then on that day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them in that upper room and, and uh, church history kind of uh, began in, in a real sense. And so he, he, as the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, here is the Lord publicly and officially bringing the church uh, into existence. And Jesus had promised that he would do that. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, he said in John 16, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, speaking of the Holy Spirit, I will send him to you. And that baptism of the Holy Spirit, Jesus spoke of it as the Holy Spirit coming upon us, giving us the power to live a Christ-like life in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts uh, part of the earth. It's interesting that in this uh, offering, when you read through it, uh, there is leaven in uh, two of the loaves that are offered to the Lord. And you think, what in the world is... I thought, this, I thought every sacrifice that would be offered to the Lord, there would be zero leaven in it. But there's leaven in, in two of, of the loaves. And that speaks of the fact that the church would not be perfect, would not be sinless uh, until we see the Lord. I know you're perfect and sinless. We're talking about other churches and, and other Christians. So the Feast of Pentecost pictures Jesus sending the Holy Spirit in, into the church, the birth of the church or upon the church uh, and giving them that power. So Jesus fulfilled the feast in the sending of His Holy Spirit. Now, something very interesting happens between verse 22 and verse 23. There's a four-month gap between these two uh, sections of feasts. And the first three feasts that we've already just looked at, Jesus fulfilled those feasts in his first coming. Uh, the four final feasts that we're going to look at, these are feasts that he is going to fulfill uh, in his uh, second coming. And so are the final three feasts he's going to fulfill in his uh, second coming. They have a, or well, actually in the rapture and then in his second coming. So these are future, uh, going to be fulfilled in their fullest way by Jesus in the future. So you have this gap, even with a gap that God built into uh, these feasts in their calendar year, it, it, it built in a, the idea that there would be a gap between kind of the fulfillment of these things and that gap, uh, of course, represents uh, the church age. Now the Feast of Trumpets here, uh, in verse 23. Then the Lord spoke uh, to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And so the timing of it was First day of the seventh month, that's the equivalent of our September, October. So after Pentecost, this long interval before there was another uh, feast. And all three of these final feasts are going to be in the same, uh, same month, the seventh month. 
Now, the Feast of, of Trumpets was the first of, of these three fall festivals that fell in, in the seventh month, and the purpose of it was there's a trumpet, and one of the uses for a trumpet uh, in the Old Testament by God among His people was to awaken them, was to alert them, to put them in a, a, a condition of ready, uh, readiness. And so this Feast of Trumpets occurs prior to the uh, Day of Atonement and then the Feast of Tabernacles because this particular feast was intended to alert them to be ready now uh, for the two feasts that were going, uh, were going to follow uh, in, in the month. And so here you have a feast that involves the themes of watchfulness and preparedness and it also has the added kind of angle to it of the sounding of trumpets. Now, uh, of a trumpet. And so what this speaks of Jesus. Jesus spoke of the rapture of the church, uh, his coming to deliver his church, his people out of the world prior to the great uh, tribulation. And he spoke of that event as an event that we're to be watching for, we're to be waiting for, that we're to be ready uh, for to happen at any moment in time. Uh, any, do we want to vote tonight on whether the rapture ha should happen tonight? Any just personal preference at all? I'm so ready to go. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad I'm saved and in, and I know that if he'd have come however many years ago, I'd have been out. So it's, it's worth hanging around for, for people to get saved and all. But so help me, if you attend this church and you are not saved and you sit here week after week and we find out you are the fullness of the Gentiles, we'll need a new body to deal with our bitterness on things. But then if you do get saved here, then we'll need a new body to deal with the pride and all. We'd all have the last one got saved at our church buttons in heaven, you know, that whole kind of thing. So, see, There's no winning. God's got His hands full with us, doesn't He? But, but that's, uh, that's what uh, this, you know, as Jesus spoke about the rapture of the church, and this was, we were to be always alert and prepared for it. He said, uh, Jesus did in Matthew 24, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you don't know what hour your Lord is coming. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul wrote, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Uh, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Uh, Paul wrote to Titus, and he said, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit gives us revelation uh, concerning the rapture, it's something we're watching for, we're waiting for. But the Holy Spirit also gives us the revelation that a trumpet will be a part of the sequence of rapture events there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord Himself, speaking of the rapture, will descend from heaven with a shout, something like, let's get you out of here, you know. I don't know what it will be, it will be great. With the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Would you believe that the world is headed for such a condition 
that the single great word of comfort to us as uh, Christians in this world will be the, the return of the Lord for the rapture of the church. And we're certainly seeing all of that increasing. And so this feast speaks of Jesus' coming to rapture a watchful, waiting, prepared people. So it's a future event. It is so fascinating to me. One of the things when I, became a, when I first became a Christian just really, really got into prophecy and uh, the prophetic element of the Bible in terms of speaking of the first coming of Christ but then also future events. And, uh, the, and you know, I started walking with the Lord back in 1980 and we were ready to go back then. I said, wow, we've only got five minutes or so, I think, you know, and, and it was good we're supposed to live that way and I don't, I don't regret that at all. And, uh, but just watching and waiting and here's Israel back in the land like God said I mean a miracle of uh, you know God-like proportions you know and so many things that we were seeing and then I can I can hardly pick up a newspaper or, or see something new that just shows the the development of the whole last time scenario uh, for the rapture of the church there's nothing that needs to be fulfilled uh, biblically for the church to be raptured and taken out and then God to move on with a, a terrible really uh, great, but necessary great tribulation upon the earth and it's big things like the alliance I mean it was a few years ago remember when Russia was really making these strong kind of uh, probably won't be able to get a visa to Russia now great but remember when you know Russia was like the evil empire and when we were growing up Cold War and these things in my generation and and I still remember the drills where you'd go under your desk you know in case uh, Russia you know the bear launched weapons and to try and survive a nuclear attack and this kind of thing and then they kind of softened a, a decade or so ago and things were overturned and and it looked like maybe they were moving in a different direction and becoming a little more cordial and toward the west and 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 wanting to become a part of this you know larger thing and all of us who looked at Ezekiel 37 38 39 which speaks of Russia coming out of the north a major military power to the north of Israel joining up with, uh, with uh, Muslim-dominated nations to invade Israel in the last days. And we looked and said, wow, I mean, boy, Russia was so easy to just target. You should look at them, of course, look at their alliances and look at their attitude toward Israel and all. And it looked like they softened. And then, you know, some people had to backpedal a little bit. And then, but look at the consolidation of power with Putin in, in, uh, in Russia. Look at the the flexing of the muscles toward the West and all. And you see the, the geopolitical alignment of things. One of the things that's fascinating too, you, that's on the gigantic uh, scale of things, but it shows up in small things uh, too. Uh, we know that in the last days, the Bible says that well, during the Great Tribulation that the Antichrist is going to lead a revived Roman Empire into power. The, the center of power will be old Europe. It will not be uh, Russia. Uh, they're going to be wiped out in their invasion of Israel with Iran and several other nations that are mentioned in the Bible. Uh, we have a whole series on this. You can go online and pick them up in terms of end times. Very fascinating what the Bible says geopolitically about the world. And it's all just sitting there right in front of us. You know, Just amazing. 
And, but there's no real mention of the United States of America at that time. And I think that, uh, you know, for years, one of the kind of the rosy scenario related to the absence of the United States of America being mentioned prophetically or stepping in to defend Israel in, in this invasion from the north by Russia, by Iran, by Libya, by other nations that are mentioned is that, you know, the, the United States of America might be so disabled or confused as a result of of a, of a rapture of the church and, and uh, certainly would be more uh, destabilized than Russia by the rapture and certainly uh, more destabilized than Iran by the rapture. So maybe there would be this destabilization and um, by the rapture and then while we're trying to get our bearings and all the influence of the church re removed from the United States of America and then uh, you know Russia takes advantage of the opportunity as, as do uh, some of the Islam uh, the no dominated uh, nations. But the longer it goes on, you realize that it really doesn't need to, have, to be a rapture <laughs> to destabilize us in, in the trends that are just alarming in terms of the decision-making of, of our country, and not just um, geopolitically and, and morally and spiritually in our country, but even financially. Um, you cannot borrow like our nation is borrowing in terms of deficit, that's not going to just go away unless you just burn the currency and go into hyperinflation or do something to destabilize it like crazy. But you're talking about, and those of you that understand, I'm not trying to depress you tonight, has a happy ending. The happy ending is the rapture, ladies and gentlemen. But the, the point is, is that it, there comes a point where foreign money is not going to pour in to, to stabilize our, our recklessness, not only individually, uh, financially, but as a, as a nation. And uh, it was fascinating. You might have read in the Parade magazine in the Sunday newspaper, that great bastion of, it's right up there with the Wall Street Journal and uh, everything, but they had, um, this accusation had been made against one of the great, one of the highest paid models today. You know, I forget her name. I, I try to keep up with all this stuff. And, uh, but uh, the accusation, she had been accused of saying after she had done her modeling work and she makes uh, gazillions of dollars, she requested that she be paid in euros and not in dollars. And I don't need to tell you how weak the dollar is against the euro. I never thought in my lifetime there would ever be a discussion in oil producing nations and other nations of the world, a serious discussion about abandoning the dollar for the euro, and yet it has happened with our government's policy of devaluing the, the dollar. Now, they can do things to change that and all, but I'm just saying that that discussion is even on the table is amazing when you think about what God says about the fact that this thing is, the Antichrist is going to lead an economic uh, empire uh, into power centered in Europe, and we see just the fingerprints uh, all over the place. So I'm, I'm watching and waiting, and I'm busy about the Lord's business, so it's not like I'm not doing anything while I'm waiting for this. Uh, and so the, the, the parables that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, they have the message of that we're to be watching and waiting and then working while we are watching and waiting, occupying, taking care of business until he comes. And the most important business is 
to be faithful to his call upon our lives. But that trump is right around the corner. Now he moves on to the day of atonement in uh, verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. And it shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on the same day, for it is the day of atonement. At one is what the word means. To make at one or atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that day shall be cut off from his people. And any people, person who does... Uh, any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. And so we looked at this with some depth in chapter 16, but uh, the 10th day uh, of the seventh month, and uh, so it was a, a time where they celebrated uh, at one with God, God's forgiveness and, uh, and access to God. And so they, it was a time to... Uh, to, because of the two, two uh, goats that were killed and all, they're just thankful. God, thank you for a way of having a personal relationship with you through the sacrifices that you've prescribed. How this speaks concerning Jesus, the two great themes of the Day of Atonement were number one, forgiveness, and number two, access to God because of that uh, forgiveness. And so the sacrifices offered on the Day of Atonement, they provided the Jewish people with an Old Testament forgiveness, with an Old Testament at one or relationship with God until Jesus came into the world, as we saw in chapter 16, to provide us with an even greater forgiveness and an even greater access to God than the children of Israel uh, could have ever uh, dreamed for. This Old Testament atonement is a picture or a shadow of the greater atonement that's been provided for us in Christ. He has provided us with an access to heaven uh, any time, day or night, as often as we want versus one man, you know, uh, one day out of the year, out of the whole nation going in as the high priest did on the Jewish uh, Day of Atonement. And so what the Day of Atonement speaks of concerning Christ and the whole picture here is it speaks of the ultimate atonement or at one that we will experience at the time of the rapture. Uh, now we have tremendous access. We have, the children of Israel had their forgiveness. They had their access. They were happy with that. You know, until Jesus comes and provides us with a greater atonement, at one with God, depth of relationship with God, access to Him anytime, day or night, in prayer. But even this is one day going to give way 
to a face-to-face relationship with God. Now we see through a glass darkly, the Bible says, but then face-to-face. And it's interesting as the feasts lay out the Day of Atonement. Why didn't he put the Day of Atonement at the beginning? It was the most important day of all of the days. But he puts it at number six here in the line because the ultimate at-one-ment in a relationship with God will occur following the rapture of the church when we are then face-to-face Uh, with God. And so the picture is beautiful. He moves on in verse 33 to the Feast of Tabernacles. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And on the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall make, have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything in its day. Beside the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all of your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. And on the fifteenth day of the seventh day, when you have gathered the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days, and on the seventh day, on, and on the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest, and you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, the willows of the and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And what the Feast of Tabernacles uh, was a celebration of was God's faithfulness to provide for them. Here is the here is the late harvest, the wheat harvest that they're bringing in. So it was an acknowledgement that God had provided for them. But it was also a feast where uh, they were remembering God's faithfulness to them for the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness. In their journey from Egypt to the promised land, it should have been a very short journey. It was a long journey because of their disobedience. But God was faithful to them. And so one week out of the year, they still do it in Israel today. You can live in Jerusalem and have a house in Jerusalem that is valued at multiplied millions. Beautiful, beautiful place inside the ancient walls of the city. And then if somebody is an observant Jew and takes these things seriously, for seven days they'll build a booth out of branches and all, and right next to the house, and they'll sleep inside of of that booth for a week. And it reminded them in their history of when they had that 40-year camping trip and they could look up through those branches and see the stars and, and all of this and to remember how faithful God had been to them, even in their disobedience, but how good He had been to them and, and gracious. And so that's what it represented to them. It was a remembrance of, a, of an important event in their history. Don't you love the faithfulness of God? We've got to establish something. Well, we do. I mean, it's the Holy Spirit in us. 
making us aware of, of how faithful He is and how blessed we are because of His faithfulness. But that's a wonderful thing to celebrate in our God is His faithfulness. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generation may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so the Feast of, of Tabernacles, that was the purpose of it with the children of Israel. In terms of what it speaks concerning Jesus... There are many, many Christians who believe that the date of Jesus' birth, that, uh, for the, the date for him to be born into the world, to come into the world, to tabernacle with us. Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, John said, And the Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt means literally tabernacled among us. We're talking about the Feast of Tabernacle uh, here. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so some people look at it and say, well, Jesus' birth into the world was a fulfillment of this particular uh, uh, feast and, and all. Well, it kind of matches because we know that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. I mean, highly unlikely. Uh, there, uh, by that that time it is so cold and wintry out in the fields in Bethlehem that nobody's out there keeping watch of their flock by night. <laughs> They've got them inside protected if you cared and valued your flock at all. So it probably was fall when that Jesus was born into the world and the, angels came, the angel came and then gave that declaration and the whole Christmas story that we've just uh, celebrated. And so people uh, believe that, that it was already fulfilled in, in his birth, in his first coming to tabernacle. Others believe that this has got a future fulfillment and, and, and that this is going to be uh, fulfilled at the time of the rapture of, of the church. And so this feast is also known as the Feast of Ingathering, Exodus chapter 23, verse 16. And because it is associated with the completion of the harvest, many Christians believe that the rapture of the church or the ingathering of God's people prior to the Great Tribulation is going to occur September, October of the year because of this Feast of Tabernacles, that it will be fulfilled in the rapture. I see what they're saying. I've never been comfortable with it. And the reason I've never been comfortable with it has to do with the Bible's teaching concerning the imminence of the rapture of the church, meaning that we are to live, and, and God wants us to, as if the rapture could happen at any time. Uh, Jesus said, the Bible says, it'll happen at a time when we think not. Maybe the best day for the Lord to uh, have raptured us in, in, in the whole wide world in the whole calendar year when people aren't thinking about it uh, would be Christmas, uh, December 25th, you know, the day that's set aside for his birth. If right when everybody's opening presents everywhere. Boom, gotcha. <laughs> Not one of you were looking, were you? Commercial Babylon. I'll give you commercial Babylon. So, but anyway, didn't want to ruin your Christmas. Did you like your coat and, you know, the different presents you got and little Starbucks card and... Things like that. Don't pray over that. That's not good for you. You can't pray and ask God to bless those drinks as you put them into your body. But um, just take it and 
The Bible says, well, you can. Pray over it. Any deadly poison, the Bible says, it will protect you from that. So, but the fact, I've never liked it when you read these, these books where people take pot shots at the time of the rapture of the church. They're always looking at September, October, because they're looking at this feast as a feast that hasn't been fulfilled yet. And so they think that that will happen. And I'm, I'm not comfortable uh, with that. There are others who believe, and, I, and I'm in, in this particular group, that this feast is going to be fulfilled at Jesus' second coming when he comes back to the earth a second time to establish his thousand-year reign upon the earth. And it will be at his second coming that he will tabernacle among us in an even fuller and richer way than he did in some respects in his first coming. He did a greater thing in his first coming, but he will tabernacle with us a longer period of time in his second coming because he will establish his millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign. So his time on earth will be serving with him during that time as, as Christians, but his time on the earth will be a thousand years versus 33 years. And then also, during that millennial reign, there'll be a fuller expression of his nature. In his first coming, he came as the suffering Savior to die on the cross for our sins. In his second coming, he will still be and always be the suffering Savior who came to die for our sins, but he will return also as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will rule this world, the Bible says, with a rod of iron. There will be an absolute righteous rule that he will establish uh, on, on the earth. And so he is going to come, he is going to tabernacle with us in an even fuller way. And, uh, and so uh, the feast, I think, uh, speaks of that future thing. The rapture of the church during the se uh, seven years of the great tribulation when we're in heaven, we're going to have an atonement with God face to face that we hadn't had before. And then at the second coming, the fulfillment of this feast. And so Moses declared to the children of Israel um, the feast of the Lord and he obediently delivered it to them. So as Christians, all of these uh, all that these seven feasts represent to the children of Israel, wonderful for them, uh, but they re represent for them and, even, and, and for us even more in Jesus, uh, in the Savior that is ours. We get to celebrate these things all day, every day in our hearts. The Feast of, Ta of, of the Passover teaches us that because of Jesus we have a salvation from the judgment that our sin uh, deserves. And because of his blood and his sacrifice applied to our lives, that judgment that our sin deserves has passed over us. The Feast of Unleavened Bread teaches us that because of Jesus, we've not only been delivered from the penalty of sin, but we've been delivered from the power of sin. He's given us the ability to live a holy life. The Feast of First Fruit teaches us that our resurrection from the dead, our victory over death in the future, is as sure as Jesus' resurrection. Anybody hear a little hip hip hooray in your heart by the Spirit of God? It's a sure thing. And the Feast of Pentecost reminds us of the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has made available to us. 
uh, as his children. And then to the future, the Feast of Trumpets reminds us to be found watching and waiting and working at the time of the rapture. The Day of Atonement reminds us of a greater at that is in our future. Again, no longer through a glass darkly, but face to face. Feast of Tabernacle reminds us of the fact that Jesus is going to return to tabernacle in this world once again, this time as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will turn this world into a Canaan for 1,000 years, a land flowing with milk and honey. What a Savior. Amen? What a Savior. Perhaps the worship team could come forward. We'll stop here tonight. We're never going to get done with Leviticus if you keep doing this, but...